Well, good morning, Redemption Hill, and whoever else is uh, tuning in uh, via the live stream this morning. It's great to be with you today on this, yes, very, very weird Sunday as we are uh, hemmed in by this snowstorm. But I'm very thankful that we have the opportunity to dive in to God's Word this morning, uh, even if we are apart. I have a secret to tell you. I have a secret to tell you. These words, I have a secret to tell you, are some of the most, uh, I would argue, intriguing words in the English language. All of us, in one way or another, love being read into secrets or being given insights into a mystery. And so our passage today illuminates a mystery. But it's not just any old mystery. No. In fact, it's the most consequential mystery of all time. A mystery mystery revealed to the Apostle Paul that would alter world history as well as the destinies of billions of people. A mystery, though revealed 2,000 years ago, has everything to do with you wherever you sit today. And so, turn with me in your Bibles, uh, whether you're accessing it on your computer today or with a uh, paper copy, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 12 verses. So again, that's Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. So let's read that. Uh, together now. All right, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men, in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least The very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose of that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with with confidence through our faith in him. Pray with me now. Dear God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word today and you would use my feeble lips uh, as as your instrument today. Amen. So in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul unveils a mystery with major implications 
for his original audience and for us. But first, before we talk about that, uh, to understand what he's saying about this mystery, we need a little bit of context, right? Because we're jumping into the middle of a letter here. Now, what's Paul, what is Paul doing? Paul's writing uh, this letter to the church in Ephesus in the first century. Uh, a church made up of non-Jewish people. You might say, well, that's nice. Why is that little nugget of detail important? Well, here's the important bit. They're non-Jewish, which means they, in other words, they're Gentiles. Now, this is important because the promises and blessings of God in the Old Testament, in the far past, they were given to the people of Israel, not the Gentiles. So up until this point, as Paul's writing, up until this point, the Gentiles sat outside the people of God. They sat outside of God's family. Uh, in a sense, they're on the outside looking in on the family dinner. They're, they're out there in the snow, looking in on the house, looking in on the family of God. And so by themselves, the Ephesians, these Gentiles, have no hope. You might say, well, that's a bummer for them. But here's the thing. If left to ourselves, that's the situation for us too. Now, again, I can't see who's watching, but most, if not everyone, again, I, don't, I can't see who's watching, but if not everyone watching this stream today is a Gentile, non-Jewish. You're not, we are not the people of Israel. And so therefore, by ourselves, you and I have no right or ability to approach God and join his family. We are on the outside looking in. Uh, but we've read the passage, though, and both Paul's conversion in Acts 9 and this passage, we see that something's changed. A mystery's been revealed, as we've read, right? A mystery that, and look down to your Bibles, verse 5, a mystery that, as verse 5 says, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Uh, but now it's been revealed by, as Paul says, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so what is the mystery? Well, it's in verse 6. And it's this verse, verse 6, we're going to camp out today. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a power-packed mystery. The Gentiles are to be welcomed into the people of God. And not only that, but they are on equal footing as a new, unified people. Now, many of you have read this passage, or Acts 9, as you read at the beginning of the service before, and you, you, you know about this mystery. Uh, you've heard about the Gentiles being brought into the people of God. But when sometimes, sometimes when a truth is so foundational, we skim over fundamental questions about that truth. And so this morning, I want to dive in to three fundamental questions that arise out of this passage about this mystery. Now, 
I'll, I'll make sure to repeat these as we go. But the, the first question I want to ask is this. What's the basis for this newfound Christian unity? That is, what are Christians united by exactly? Second, what are the real-world results of this Christian unity? What are its implications? And thirdly and finally, what is the point of this unity? What's the purpose? And of course, hovering over all of these questions is why does it even matter for you sitting in your chair or couch or wherever you're watching this today? So the first question, what is the basis of this newfound Christian unity? You know, this may not surprise you, or this might surprise you, but I'm not an expert in constructing things. Actually, this is really the most least surprising thing for people who know me. I am not exactly a handyman, fairly inept at such things. However, in my very basic rudimentary knowledge, I do know this. The construction of something even as big as a skyscraper is all for naught if there is not a good foundation. I mean, you can have the best fiberglass or whatever goes in skyscrapers. You can have the strongest iron. But if the foundation is not strong, that building is going to be coming down in the next Pacific Northwest earthquake. Why do I say that? Well, let's apply this foundation logic to Paul's statement in verse 6. So Paul, go, Paul goes out and states that the Jews and Gentiles are bound together. In fact, earlier in the letter, he compares them to a, a building. But what's the basis for this building? What, what is binding these believers together? What, what's bounding or binding the Jews and Gentiles together? What's undergirding this building? Well, the answer is found in two little words, really three little words at the end of verse 6. Look, look down at your Bibles for a second. Verse 6, near the end. Well, I'll just read it. This mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Hmm. So what we see here is Christians are bound together in Christ Jesus. That's the ground, the reason for Paul's statement. Okay. Now this brings up a larger question. What does Paul mean when he speaks of somebody being in Christ? Well, to speak of a person being in Christ is to speak of their spiritual union with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. So when someone repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation, in that moment, the Holy Spirit spiritually unites this individual to Jesus Christ, who has, a, who has alone accomplished their salvation. It is only in Christ that believers can then partake of God's saving benefits. Now that might sound abstract maybe even unfamiliar. But what's interesting is that the phrase in, with, or through Christ 
appears over 200 times in the New Testament. I mean, that's something that happens. It's like it happens so often. It's all over the place that we might miss it. It, 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 It's an abundant reality. Now, of course, we're not going to look at all 200 texts, of course. I suspect that might take the whole day. But we can even see this idea, if we're trying to define what does it mean to be in Christ, we can see this idea even at the beginning of Ephesians. We don't even have to leave this letter. So flip back or click back to the beginning of Ephesians. Go back to the first chapter here. I will as well. And take a look at verse 3 as we look to figure out what does in Christ mean? What does what being in Christ bring to the believer exactly? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right? Scan your eyes down to verse 4. He chose us, that is God, in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. Predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's the same idea as in Verse 7, I mean, it just keeps going here. And we're only like a few verses in. In him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 13, look at this. In him you also, it goes on later, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now flip a little farther ahead. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. These famous, amazing verses, but what do we see here, Redemption Hill? But God made us alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, last one. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is just a chapter and a half of the New Testament. I mean, it just keeps going throughout the rest of the New Testament. So what can we say? Well, even after our very brief survey, we can confidently say that all of God's spiritual blessings, past, present, and future, are all made possible by someone being in union with Christ. That's what we're talking about here, union with Christ. John Murray is certainly right when he says, that union with or quote that union with Christ underlies every aspect of redemption all of god's saving grace is bound up in jesus christ and so we've arrived at the answer to our first question then haven't we the basis the foundation remember that building the foundation for the unity of jews greeks Americans, whoever you are, lies in a shared union with Christ himself. The cornerstone, as Paul describes even later in Ephesians. Jesus is the foundation upon which God's family from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation can stand. Who are you united to as you watch As you watch through the screen today, who are you united to? As you watch through this camera, do you know? 
Now, this is important because if all of God's saving grace is found in being united to Christ, there is no grace offered outside of him. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. And if if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Because Jesus, the God-man, bore the guilt of your sin on the cross, that door is open to you. Repent of your sins and place your trust in Him for salvation if you've never done so. Be united to Him. Because if Paul's right here, there is no other way. To join his family, you've got to join, to join the family meal, to enter through the door, or to join the meal, you've got to go through the door. You have to be in union with Christ. There's no other way but, as Paul says in Romans 6, verses 4 and 5, no other way but to be, quote, buried, here it is again, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This morning, be united with Christ and walk in that newness of life. Friend, be united to Christ even today. So, the basis for Christian unity is union with Christ then. Now, this brings us to our second question brought up by this passage. If this is true, all this stuff about union with Christ is true, if he's the foundation, then what are its implications? What's the result of all of this, of this mystery? Uh, We find our answer again in verse 6. Look down in your Bibles. You're probably going to be sick of this verse by the end of the sermon. This mystery is that The Gentiles, here are the results, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. Most of us, most of you watching this, uh, if not all of us today, know someone who has adopted a child or is adopted themselves. In fact, I know of people at Redemption Hill who uh, have ad- you've adopted children yourselves, so you'll understand what I'm about to say well. Uh, my wife, Mai, and I have some close friends uh, who are in the process of, of adopting, and honestly, it has not been easy in the least for them. I mean, I didn't realize that it wasn't an automatic process, and depending on the situation... I mean, it can take, the process can take months and years and involve stinging heartbreak. And really, they're operating in a cloud of uh, uncertainty of the future and and, and what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day with our friends, if God does indeed give them a child, But some of you might be in this same boat. If God indeed does give them a child, they know one thing will be true. That is this. This child will be their child, period. This child will receive the same love, 
the same privileges their biological son enjoys. It's, this child is not going to be a, a second-class sibling. It, it's really a profound, beautiful thing. And yet, even and as profound and as beautiful as that is, in verse 6, we see an even more profound reality of adoption. The mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles have been adopted by God and now share the same spiritual privileges with the Jews. In Christ, both Jews and Gentiles may now, as verse 12 uh, lets us know, they both have boldness and access with confidence to access God himself. It's really, it's really difficult for, for me. It's actually, it might be impossible for me to overstate how incredibly revolutionary this idea was to the Jews of Paul's day. For them, the, the thought of the Gentiles being equal before God would be like trying to fit a, a, a square block through a, a circle hole. Like, you know, just, just doesn't compute. That, that doesn't work. But now, instead of being separated, the Gentiles are co-heirs. Now, we don't exactly use the word co-heirs that much. But it's, it's like, a, like a newly adopted child entering a family. The Gentiles now possess the same legal status before God. So what this means, Redemption Hill and whoever's watching, is no matter your race, your background, whatever it is in your past, whatever it is who you are, if you're in Christ, you possess the same spiritual inheritance now and in the new creation as any other Christian. Every believer is blessed with, as chapter 1, verse 3 says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, we may have, and, and we do, different gifts and abilities. Yes, that is true. But through, faith in, uh, but through faith in Christ and His gospel, every believer becomes a partaker of God's promises. It's really, a, as glorious as earthly adoption is in our world, that's only a picture of the glorious reality of God's adoption of His people. So at this point, we've dissected verse 6 pretty thoroughly. However, there's one result of the unity believers have in Christ that I think is especially important for us today. And that's this. In Christ, we are, quote, members of the same body. So let's, let's just uh, go back to the example of adoption here. When a child is adopted by a, a parent or a mother, a mother and father, uh, the child is, is given new parents, right? But oftentimes, now whether they like it or not, that's not all they're given. If the mother and father have other kids, the, the, the adopted child doesn't remain separate 
from them. Like uh, it, it, the the kids in its own subfamily or in its own category. No, it, no. Instead, the adopted child is also given a whole new set of brothers and sisters. They're part of the family now. They're part of the family now. Now, that status of being part of the family, the objective status of you are part of this family, means that the child is called to live in light of that reality. I mean, this child's going to share the same house, uh, the, sh- the same family table. This, this adopted child's not sleeping out there in the snow. You know, he's, he's part of the family. And so it is when somebody becomes a Christian. When someone becomes a Christian and is placed in union with Christ, as we talked about a lot before this morning, they become a member of the universal church. It is true. Uh, that is, they bec- uh, that's really just a fancy way of saying they become part of the body of all believers uh, in every place in the world and across all history. That's true. And yet, this is what I want to get, membership in this universal church is lived out. This, Like the child living out the reality of being adopted in the house of their parents, membership in the universal church is lived out tangibly and really in the local church. In other words, an implication of being part of the family of God is by living amongst the family of God. We have the Heavenly Father, but we also have spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters. And it's really it's somewhat ironic because today we are not assembled. We are assembled online. But it's no accident that the word for church, ecclesia, literally means assembly. The universal church, the universal assembly, by its very nature, assembles together in local bodies, bodies of believers. That's how it's lived out in this world, in this flesh and blood world. This is one major implication of being in Christ. And many of you watching today are indeed in Christ and are part of this or part of a local assembly, whether Redemption Hill or somewhere else. But many of you, for various reasons, again, I, I, I don't know, I can't see who I'm looking at. I don't know who you are, but for various reasons, you're not. You're in union with Christ, but you're living outside of His family. You're living outside, apart from your siblings. And so my prayer is that verse 6 might serve as a call for you to join a faithful local church. Whether it's Redemption Hill or another faithful local church, wherever you're at. To join a tangible, real body of believers who are, as we've learned today, or seen today, who are your fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the promise of God, your siblings. 
So we've answered our first two questions this morning. What's the basis for our unity? Union with Christ. Second, what are the implications of that? We've been adopted into God's family and are called to live in light of that reality, to live as who we are. This passage invites one more question of us, the third and final. What's the reason? What's the point behind this Christian unity? What's the point behind, I mean, what's the reason? What's the point behind all these Christians gathering together in a local body? Why? Maybe you're asking that today. Why? I mean, we might come up with a plethora of answers. But we don't need to. Because Paul gives us the answer straight up as clear as day. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 8 with me. And just think about this question as you're reading it. What is the purpose behind this church, this gathering? I'll read verse 8 through 10. To me, though I am the least, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Hmm. So today we've talked about the mystery of individual believers from across all places being brought together in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. But here we see the point of it all. We're reaching the mountaintop. Here's the point. Paul was given this grace, and as he says in verse 8, it's another way of saying he was given this mystery. So that, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is, if we sit on it for a second, this is a profound, astonishing statement. What we see here is that the purpose, the ultimate chief purpose of the church is not to be merely a religious services provider akin to your favorite gym or uh, your favorite restaurant. Nor is the church an end to itself, a community, a feeling of community for the sake of community. Though the church is certainly a community. Nor does the church even simply exist as its chief calling to call people to God and to save souls. Though that is a marvelous, important, and essential work. I'm not downplaying it. But what is the ultimate reason purpose of this church? Well, the supreme overriding purpose for the church is to glorify God by manifesting His wisdom. How does it do that? Well, it's to shine as a beacon, throwing light on the genius and grace of God who chose to gather a, a, a motley group from all nations in the worship of Himself. It's to, it's to be a neon sign, to serve as a neon sign 
that turns the world's eyes towards a God who reconciled himself to a gang of dead, lifeless, unworthy sinners through the blood of his precious son. That's why the church assembled. That's why we assemble Redemption Hill. When a snowstorm doesn't clog the roads, the body of Redemption Hill gathers on Sunday mornings. And there is a certain routine about it, right? Uh, you know, we, uh, you, you gather, you sing, or you, you gather, you set up, you sing, you pray, you listen to God's word, and then the set-up team tears down. There is a certain routine about it, to be sure. And it may be a routine, yes. But what we see here is that it is far, far from ordinary. What we see here is that when you gather in Christ's Redemption Hill, you testify in the gathering. You testify to all creation the wisdom and eternal purposes of God. You testify to the fact that though you were once lost, You've been found. And now you sit at God's family table with your brothers and sisters. You're stepping in to the eternal purposes of God, which he will consummate one day. You're stepping into that in the gathering. That's no ordinary purpose. So next week, barring a, another catastrophic snowstorm, when you gather here in the ballroom of Hotel 116 and off the 405 in Bellevue, Washington, or wherever your local church may be, remember that you're not merely gathering to gather. No, you're gathering most fundamentally to participate in the glorious, gracious, uniting mystery of God, the Creator Himself. That's no ordinary purpose. Pray with me. Dear God, I thank you for every individual who has tuned in this morning to this stream. Uh, but God, I pray in particular with our passage today, I pray uh, for the body of Redemption Hill that and for every local church across the world, that we may be gripped uh, by our purpose statement, uh, that we are gathering together to display you, O oh God. I pray that we're gripped by this truth. Amen.